Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Hi, and welcome to the Goop Podcast. I'm Elise Lunan, Goop's Chief Content Officer and Gwyneth's co-host. Today's guest is David Sheff, the author of the number one New York Times bestselling book, Beautiful Boy, which is a movie you might have seen with Steve Carell. He has a new book out called The Buddhist on Death Row, How One Man Found Light in the Darkest Place, which is heart-wrenching and profound. In it, he tells the story of Jarvis J. Masters, a man whose childhood was marred by incredible trauma, leading him down a path of violence and ultimately after being set up for the murder of a prison guard on death row. During his trial, a criminal investigator offered to teach him breathing techniques. And though he hesitated at first, he began exploring both meditation and Buddhist teachings. Ultimately, Pema Chodron became one of his teachers and guides, and then he, in turn, led many around him to a place of enduring peace. I'm dying to actually talk to him, and David is working to help us make that happen. But in the interim, I hope you'll dive in today's episode, because it has a lot to teach us about the universality of suffering and how we can all keep each other alight and aloft during dark times. We realize we're all connected. You know, we're all joined by that suffering. And if we try, at least, to help others you know, we connect with them, we connect with all humanity, and suddenly we're not in as much pain anymore. Okay, let's get to my chat with David Chef. So thank you for your latest book. And thank you for Beautiful Boy. And I'm excited for whatever you're working on next. Of course, I started with the acknowledgments. I don't know, I have this 
quirk where before I read a book, I read the acknowledgments. And I noted that this book was apparently due two years ago. So why did this one take so long? Was it just this need to get his life right? Or were you hoping that there would be sort of a happy ending to write about? I definitely would have liked to have to be able to end the book with some you know great dramatic happy ending where uh, the guy I write about Jarvis Masters, who's on death row, walks out of the prison a free man as he should. But that didn't happen. And that's not really why it took so long, because I wasn't waiting for that. I think he has a good chance of getting out because he's innocent and there's evidence about that, but it's going to be a while because the process is so slow, the appeals process in California, anywhere in the country. But it took so long because I've, you know, I've written a lot of books and realized that I've written from the outside, you know, as a journalist looking in. The difference here is because this guy I was spending all this time with was confined, you know, for most of his life in a cage, basically. You know, it's not the kind of book that I could write. You know, I'm you know walking into the, you know, whatever to, you know, someone's house in some neighborhood and describing the trees. And this was about what's going on inside someone's head, because really the book is about change. It's about how Jarvis changed from the person that he was when he ended up in prison when he was 19 to the person he is now, who's this you know, extraordinary person and Buddhist practitioner and teacher and writer. But change from my own experience and from what I heard from other people, it's not just Jarvis's story. It's about the story of anyone who's interested and wants to change because of you know, various struggles in our lives. But it happens inside. Change happens inside the mind. It's not external. The years I spent visiting Jarvis were all in the same small, tiny room, a cage, literally. You know, occasionally there'd be people in cages next to us, people like, you know, Scott Peterson or the Trailside Killer. I mean, it was, you know, it's surreal to be there. But it was a struggle for me to figure out how to write about how a person changes. Because, as I said, you know, that's something that happens. You can't show it on the outside. You know, it, it, it's something that happens in the mind. And I had to figure out with the help of my editor, you know, how to tell the story. And that's, uh, there were many, many, many drafts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought some of the, you know, there were many beautiful moments and sort of the exploration too of his relationship with Pema Chodron was amazing. And almost to be a student with them, I thought was such a gift to the reader as they navigate what he's going through. I thought the beginning or near the beginning when I think it's Melody, you know, who's first sort of exhorting him to try meditation, right? Because it had worked for her in her traumatic past. And his response is essentially like, I cannot close my eyes in here. Like I can barely survive. I've been taught throughout my life, like you close your eyes, you get jumped or killed or... And that was such an, a searing idea of not only being not able to find peace internally, but this, this hypervigilant state of being amidst a sea of, you know, serial killers. And he talks about the, you know, the neighbor down the way who, you know, murdered children or raped children, just being with people who have done incredibly heinous things. And this idea that he was being asked to close his eyes and sit there. I thought that was such a, such an incredible way to start. You know, I, I was also stunned by that. It was 
really uh, you know, moving. And as you say, it really sort of summed up who, who he was then and what his life was like. He was in a situation where it wasn't just in San Quentin where he was at risk of you know, a really violent time in San Quentin. It's, it's still horrific in many ways, but it was worse then when he was 19 years old. So that was about 35 years ago. And so the threats from the outside were extraordinary. And it wasn't just inmates, it was also guards. There was a war inside the prison of between gangs, the black gangs against the you know white Aryan nation gangs and the Mexican mafia. And the guards were aligned, you know, with the gangs in many cases. So he, he was in serious threat, but it wasn't only then. He basically had grown up in neighborhoods that were incredibly violent, you know, lots of addiction and, and lots of guns. And, you know, he'd been involved in armed robberies and, and uh, drive-by shootings. And, you know, it was really uh, dangerous and, and, and scary. And, and he admits, you know, violent life. And as he said, he was suffering. He was terrified when he was in prison. He was being tried for a murder of a guard that he did not commit, but it was a crime that could bring the death penalty. So he was suffering that, you know, terror, in addition to being in this incredibly violent, you know, world in this violent, these violent surroundings. And, you know, guards pushed him down the stairs. It was a very, very unsafe and scary environment. And his investigator, uh, Melody, Irma Child, was, she was just so sad. She wanted to help him. Being outside the prison, there wasn't much she could do. So the one thing that had helped her in her life when she was suffering and when she was struggling was meditation. And so, yeah, she thought she would offer it to Jarvis. And she did. And he wasn't open to it. He said, you know, that's what you got from me, you know, meditation. I'm in here, you know, risking my life every single day. And, but eventually, because he was so desperate, he opened to it and said, you know, what is that meditation shit? What are you talking about? <laughs> and when she said, you sit, you close your eyes, you breathe, you follow your breath. You know, he looked at her like she was clueless. And I guess in some ways, you know, she was and didn't understand what she was saying to somebody who was in Jarvis' situation because he lived in prison and he spent his life where, as he said, you know, you don't close your eyes. Uh, you are always looking out. You're looking you know, everywhere, including over your shoulder, because you're always at risk of being attacked. And you don't sit on the floor, he said, because on the floor, you have no legs, meaning you, know, you have to be ready to defend yourself. So that's where he began. And the idea that he slowly opened up to the idea of sitting and closing his eyes is a, I guess it's a testament to both his own desperation to find something that would help him survive. And Melody, you know, his, this woman, this sort of extraordinary teacher, her patience with him and her caring for him. And he ended up trusting her and felt if this was something that she thought would help him, then maybe it would. Yeah. And I loved to sort of that early, because I think that for so many of us who are not on death row and living lives of relative comfort, etc. Although we'll talk about that because he also talks about sort of the pen pals he creates over the years and how they reach out to him with seemingly perfect lives, yet are suffering and are miserable. But he talks about sort of closing his eyes after this incredibly traumatizing childhood. And as you mentioned, this life of violence and compounded by this completely unfair and inappropriate 
death sentence for a crime that he didn't commit, where the people who did actually commit the crime didn't even get the death sentence. I love that that's also sort of there's this critique of our judicial system that sort of runs through the book without being the primary focus of the book. But when he closes his eyes and is overwhelmed sort of by panic, I loved her advice because I feel like it's counter to what you often hear, which is like, just push those thoughts aside. Instead, she instructs him to, I'm going to read to you from your book, Melody repeated another instruction from her teacher. When you begin to panic, picture the upsetting events and feel the uncomfortable feelings from a safe distance. Instead of being inside them, you can watch them come. If you watch them come, you can watch them go. The teacher had said to remember that fear is a thought and thoughts can't hurt you. Thoughts can't kill you, which is so true. But so many of us are persecuted by our thoughts, right? We give them the power to continually throughout our lives hound us. And essentially, she asks him to consider just sitting in it and facing them. And that works, right? Yeah, and it's hard. I do think that many of us have this idea that meditation is all about transcending emotions and bliss, really. But I guess that's not what it's not what it is. And Jarvis learned it, and over the course of you know, researching the book, I, I, I learned it too because I didn't get it. You mentioned that one of his teachers, his closest friend, actually, is Pema Chodron, the Buddhist nun, and she describes it as uh, sitting in the fire. And there's mm-hmm. a Buddhist expression: you know, the only way out is through. So it's not about peace. Ultimately, I think it is about finding a kind of peace, but it's about facing you know who you are you know it's not running from who you are and the suffering that we've all endured it's inside us and and it's not magically going to disappear and if you just push it you know if you repress it it doesn't lose its hold on you but at the same time after a lifetime of repression it's just too scary and too maybe dangerous even in some ways to go back and to sit in that fire so the process involves an understanding that, yes, it won't kill you, even though it feels like it will, to go back to the worst experiences of your life. Because, you know, the whole Buddhist thing is, you know, we are in the present. We don't know about the future. The past, in some ways, doesn't exist. And, of course, you know, if you think about it in those sorts of, you know, that sort of you know, existential, spiritual, whatever way, you know, it's true. We don't. You know, the past is gone and, and we are in the moment and we don't know what's going to happen, you know, in the next minute. And so those memories, as powerful as they are and as scary as they are and as much pain as they contain, they're just that. They are memories. And we can survive them and we can, in some ways, surmount them and, and kind of defeat them so that they no longer are what, uh, they, they no longer, you know, control us. They no longer keep us in these ruts that we live in where we make the same mistakes over and over again and we're suffering the same childhood traumas over and over again we feel, feel like we are you know worthless we don't deserve happiness we don't deserve committed relationships because we don't we have such you know, bad feelings about ourselves bad self-esteem so yeah as Jarvis experienced this process of meditation and he was sitting there and expecting some you know glorious reward i mean he had that too i mean there were times when he sort of woke up from a meditation and had experienced this idea of being in the present to the point that he was astounded because he realized that while he was in this state he actually wasn't in prison he was somewhere else and it was sort of this glorious freedom for a while 
But sometimes when he was sitting, the worst feelings, you know, came up. And it was some of the things about his fears of the present. And some of it was the past, you know, memories of being beaten when he was a child or being burned when he was a child or being forced to fight other kids when he was a child. And he would go into these, you know, panics and this terror. And when he remembered what Melody said, when he would remember, and and Pema Chodron later, uh, and he would remember to come back to the breath, he was able to survive that. And that's what I guess she meant by sitting in the fire and not avoiding it, not running from it. And by pulling himself out with with that breath, with meditation, he survived it. And as he says, you know, the memories lose their power over time. But again, you know, the pain is enormous. Reliving those horrors was for him terrifying. And, and, you know, he would stop meditating because of his panic. And he would wake up when he, uh, you know, from a meditation and, you know, trembling in this cold sweat and didn't want to go back and was afraid and, The process takes years, and many, many years. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It was amazing too to the journey sort of and the the layers of the onion as you sort of go into his experience, as you mentioned, the things that you mentioned, being beaten, his mo- his relationship with his mother, his perception that his father had come to try to kill them all or burn down the house, which later I guess proved maybe not true with someone else. And then I thought the most the it's hard to put his experience on a pain scale but that the loss of his baby brother and thinking throughout his life somehow, not really being able to even go to that moment because it was so painful, but this idea that he carried that it was his fault. Oh God, it's just, it's so heartbreaking and then staggering to see, you know, as he came alive in your pages, and I know he's still alive and recovering from COVID, I hear, but that he has not only survived, but seems to be thriving in many ways, maybe, and as he would maybe say, thriving more than people out here who are not on death row. Yeah, it's miraculous and it's inspiring. You know, as Pema says, if we can see that Jarvis can, like you say, survive and thrive you know, on death row, living in the worst imaginable circumstances, then we can. Yeah. Um, it's a really profound idea because, you know, we... I think a lot of us, you know, have to, at least during periods of time, you know, we get so depressed, we get so anxious, we get so freaked out about, you know, the little trivial things, but also big things. And, you know, the loss of somebody we love, the, you know, many, many experiences that we don't feel like we can survive it. But, you know, I think the thing that 
we learn is that we can, and sometimes it's hard, and, and in fact, it's always hard, and, and it takes commitment, and it takes practice, and it takes kind of, you know, one of the messages here is that you don't give up, and, and that, you know, there's this amazing moment when Jarvis first meets this sort of extraordinary old Tibetan lama who comes to visit him. Yeah. And this guy, this Rinpoche, says um, he's giving him all this, you know, this Buddhist talk and uh, these platitudes. That at least they sound to Jarvis like platitudes, and telling him these, you know, these sort of Zen paradoxes, these koans, whatever. And the teacher at one point looks at him and says, "She knows. She, he can tell that Jarvis is, you know, overwhelmed and perplexed, and he doesn't get it." And the teacher said, "You know, it's okay if you don't understand. Understanding comes over time. If you." contemplate these ideas. If you live these ideas, uh, your mind will follow. And it triggered something in Jarvis that he didn't connect with until late that night when he was um, saying to himself, you know, that was too overwhelming. I can't do this. It's too hard. I don't understand. And then he remembered the teacher's words, practice and your mind will follow. And he had this amazing flashback. And it was to when he was a child he was in and out of the foster care system and in and out of the juvenile justice system, and it was horrific. You know, he was beaten, he was tortured. A foster mother, you know, put his hand in a garbage disposal and turned it on and didn't quite, you know, was pushed. she pushed his hand in there and didn't quite, you know, put him into the blades, but she threatened him and said if, she, if he ever told about the mistreatment in that foster system, in that foster home, that's what she would do to him. I mean, one thing after the other after the other. So, you know, he was in the middle of his cell and he was going through this, you know, agony about, you know, I guess this isn't for me. I don't get it. And all of a sudden he thought about what the teacher had said that, you know, it's okay if you don't get it. It comes over time. But practice and your mind will follow. And that triggered a memory of when he was a child and when he would escape sometimes from juvenile justice where kids were tortured and basically and, and you know, treated as if they were you know, adult convicts who committed the worst crimes when basically what they had done is, is, you know, run away from home or maybe petty theft or things like that at that point. And um, he would run away and he would come home and he would uh, sneak into his aunt's house and he would live there. And she accepted, you know, she took him in when nobody else in his family would. And he said that the house was filled with joy, a kind of joy that he never knew. And his aunt was always listening to these old records. And one of the records that she listened to over and over and over again was a Funkadelics record that was called Free Your Mind and Your Ass Will Follow. <laughs> and, you know, Jarvis made that connection and said, oh, that's, you know, that's what this t- teacher, this old Tibetan Lama is saying, you know, free your mind and your ass will follow. And then he just started laughing to himself because he realized, you know, his teacher was George Clinton, you know, the Funkadelic. <laughs> you know, yeah, he met this, you know, Tibetan revered, you know, Lama, but he got it through this song. You know, and that's really the way he carried on, which is to say, I don't understand this. I am not a Buddhist. I'm not interested in being a Buddhist, but I'm in pain. And so I'll do what they tell me with this promise that it will lead somewhere. And of course it did. Uh, his mind did follow. His ass did follow. And he became, you know, he changed over time. Yeah, I think it was the same Lama. I know he's had many teachers who said to him, you may not understand now, but your karma is to be here. I said you are fortunate. As hard as it is to accept, this is where you have to be for the time being. You may not see it, but you are fortunate to be in a place where you can know humanity's suffering and learn to see the perfection of all beings and yourself. 
learn to see their perfection. Because I thought that the, you know, one of the, the most beautiful parts of the book wasn't, well, it is sort of in his own, his own path towards peace, but also the incredible good that he's done from death row, right? For corrections officers, for fellow inmates, and for pen pals around the world. People write to him now all the time, and he sort of offers counsel. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's extraordinary. I mean, he was, the, he calls himself, it's not my word, it's his word, a thug. When he was, you know, when he entered prison after his, when he was 17 years old, he committed, you know, it was a crime spree, you know, lots of armed robberies of, of a Target store, you know, gas stations, fast food restaurants. And it was all about, he said, survival. And that's what his mindset was. And it's the mindset of anybody in that situation. And of course, it makes sense because you are always threatened and, and you can be killed. So it was about survival, which means thinking about his self and no one else. And the transformation to the point where he understood, you know, the Buddhist lessons in a very simplistic way, uh, from at least the way I understand it, not a Buddhist, but, you know, I learned as Jarvis learned in a a way that, you know, the basic, the first principle of Buddhism is the recognition of suffering, that, you know, we all suffer. Life is suffering. We don't want to hear it. We all want to, you know, we want to be happy. We don't want to suffer. But that's the reality. That's what life is. And then when you recognize suffering and connect other suffering to your own, there comes with that a moral obligation as a human being, part of humanity, to try to alleviate other suffering. And Jarvis didn't know how he could do that. He didn't believe he could do that, partly because of who he was, because of his past, but also because he was living in a cage. And over time, he realized that there were so many opportunities. In fact, where would there be more opportunities in the world to work to alleviate suffering than on death row, surrounded by, you know, on death row in San Quentin, there's 700 men in the whole prison. There are about 3,500 people. So he didn't have to look far to find people who needed help and who he could help. And that's why... That he ultimately, you know, he was he was appalled at first when that teacher said, you know, you're fortunate to be where you are. No, I'm not fortunate to be where I am. I'm living in hell. But he ended up understanding that he was fortunate in that way, that he was fortunate to be in a circumstance where his practice became very real very quickly because he was surrounded by people who were suffering. And he recognized not only were the inmates suffering and did they have all of them, Without exception, they'd all suffered throughout their lives. But the guards, too, you know, these guards who were sort of uh, considered, always considered his enemy, cops, guards, you know, um, and the enemy of most prisoners, he recognized their suffering, too. He said they're in prison, too. And so that transformation from, you know, living to survive to compassion to action, you know, is extraordinary. And again, it's a model for us. If Jarvis can do it in prison, can look outside mm-hmm. himself, look outside his own experience, look outside his own pain, and recognizing, recognize others. And then he found out, what we all find out, is then when we do get outside of our own pain and we do start to recognize others and we do what we can to help other people, ironically, we suffer less because we're looking at other suffering and it seems like we'd be overwhelmed. It seems like we would be drowning in suffering of other people. But we get outside of our heads. We focus on other people. We realize we're all connected. You know, we're all joined by that suffering. 
And if we try at least to help others, you know, we connect with them, we connect with all humanity, and suddenly, you know, we're not in as much pain anymore. Yeah. Will you tell the parable of Kisa Gotami? Yeah, Jarvis heard all these Buddhist stories when he first started to talk with his various you know, Buddhist friends. His criminal investigator was the first one. Uh, others, then eventually he met this, this Lama, this Rinpoche from Tibet. And a lot of the stories were so esoteric, he just didn't get it. He didn't care. He, he actually was annoyed by a lot of it. It didn't feel relevant to his life. But he was suffering, and he was um, just stuck at one point. And one of the teachers told him this story from Buddhism that was the first one that actually hit him in the gut. It changed him. And it was the story of this woman, Kitsugotame, who lived at the time of the first Buddha, or the Buddha, and lost her son died and was overcome with grief. And so she went in search of the Buddha to plead with him, to plead with him to restore her son to life. And, you know, she went on this journey and eventually she found the Buddha and she told him what she was going through and she asked if he could bring her son to life. And he said to her that he could and that he would restore her son to life. But in order to do this, he needed mustard seeds. And the mustard seeds had to come from the home that had not suffered and had not experienced death. And only then would these seeds be pure enough for him to use to revive her son. So she went out on a journey to find these mustard seeds to bring back to to the Buddha. And she went from one home to the next and the next. And many places she explained that she was in need of mustard seeds and people offered them to her. But then when she asked about their experience in the home, if they were experienced with suffering, if they were experienced with death, she was not able to find any of the homes that had avoided that and she went on and on and on and on and finally when she was she reached the thousandth home she knocked on the door this woman came out and Kisugotami asked for the mustard seeds and the woman was happy to share the seeds that she had in her home and then when Kisugotami asked if she'd experienced in her home death and suffering you know the woman turned very solemn and said you know, she'd experienced suffering throughout her life. She'd lost many people. And that was the moment that Kisa Gotami had this awakening. And she said that was the lesson that the Buddha wanted her to learn. And she let go of this longing and grief for her son. Not that she, not the full grief, but in one way, sort of, she had a recognition that everyone she'd met suffered, which meant everyone in the world suffered, that everyone she met had suffered losses, which mean everyone in the world suffered losses, like her. She was not immune, and that her son had joined this vast pool of people out there who had lived and died, and she joined the vast pool of people out there who were indeed suffering, and she was she was okay then. And she had transformed, she became enlightened at that moment, and she developed, devoted the rest of her life uh, to Buddha, to Buddhism, and to becoming a teacher herself. When Jarvis heard this story, he got it. He said that you know he didn't have to go knock on a thousand doors because he lived 
among a thousand doors, cell doors. And if you knocked on any one of those doors, you were going to find stories of suffering and death. And in some ways, he too was freed and he too connected and he too was no longer trapped by his own experience, but he opened up to the suffering of, of the people around him and ultimately to all of humanity. And that was really the big moment, the big revelation that allowed him to change. Yeah. How did writing this book change you? I know you went, I think, 200 times to death row, but how did that change you? How has your relationship with masters changed you? Well, when I went in, you know, I'm a journalist. I've always been a journalist. And I thought I was going to go in as I had with other stories. You know, I've written about art and entertainment and, and, and politics and writers and movies and everything. And I came in from the outside and reported these stories. And so my, that was my intention when I began this. But over time, I first of all, my relationship developed and I began to care about him very deeply. He's an extraordinary person. I'd heard that he was an extraordinary person before I met him, but I was cynical. I didn't get it. But he is an extraordinary person. And for somebody who's lived the life he lives, you know, every anybody who has a right to be bitter and angry and depressed, you know, he's not, you know, I would visit him and leave feeling uplifted. And it was stunning to I mean, shocking to be leaving the most desolate, desperate, dark place on earth and leaving feeling inspired. Uh, and so over time, I started to see the world a little bit differently through his eyes and to do it in a few different ways. One of them was that idea that you asked about this idea that, you know, fear is a thought and our thoughts can't kill us. You know, that's what our anxiety is. That's what our, uh, that's what really took us out of our lives so often. And, and I, you know, suffered a lot in my life, suffered with depression, suffered with anxiety. And it allowed me to pull myself out of those states, partly through meditating somewhat, but also just because of that experience that the one thing that I'll always remember that, again, it was, it, it snuck up on me. I was not intending to do this as some sort of a you know, transformative experience for myself. But I absorbed these lessons, and Jarvis told me a story about one time in his early days in prison when he had a, I can't even remember what it was, I think he had a really bad ear infection or something like that that they couldn't treat in the prison hospital, so they were bringing him to a nearby hospital. And so they put him in a prison van, two guards, three guards actually accompanied him, and they got stuck in the traffic on the way to the hospital, and the guards were complaining, they were pissed off. You know, we're in traffic. It was going along at a snail's pace, you know, as we've all experienced. And Jarvis was looking out the window and just was in heaven. And he didn't want the traffic jam to end because he was looking at people on the streets. At the time, I guess they first, we first had, you know, earpieces with cell phones. And at first he was trying to figure out why people were standing on street corners talking to themselves. Was everybody sort of schizophrenic? But then eventually, you know, he figured it out that they were on the phone. And he looked at the people in the other cars and he looked at their faces and brought tears to his eyes because you know he'd been so isolated and all of a sudden he saw these people who were living these lives and he could see their suffering he could see their joy he imagined what their lives were like you know they did they have children parents you know relationships joy you know work uh, learning everything and it, it was very emotional for him and he was thrilled to stay in that traffic jam as long as he could i was at one point 
getting to going to the prison late for my appointment because I was behind, you know, there has been an accident on the road from my house to the prison and I was stuck in traffic and I was getting really anxious and I was getting, you know, in this very familiar frenzy, you know, being in a situation that I couldn't control, I just had to wait until, you know, traffic started moving again, whether, you know, this experience going to the prison, going to the airport. And all of a sudden I remembered Jarvis's experience and I stopped and I took a breath and I started to look around and I started to look in the other cars and I looked at the faces of people and realized that I've been in that same situation countless times throughout my life. Never, ever looked in the face of somebody else who was around me, even in line at the post office or line in the grocery store. And suddenly I had the same experience that he had. And I looked at these people and I realized my mind just sort of spun out these stories about these people, you know, were they experiencing regrets? Were they experiencing joy? Were they going home to someone that they cared about? Were they going home to loneliness? And you know, my heart melted and I became very emotional and it was an amazing experience. And, you know, something I think we can all learn from. We get so busy, we get so, we start living in our own, you know, little lives, our busyness, our, you know, our own anxiety, our own frustrations, our own, you know, tragedies that, you know, when we step back from them, we realize, you know, maybe it's not so tragic and maybe, you know, the more we indulge in them, the more we are going to suffer, but that we don't have to indulge in them. And so there have been many, many, many experiences like that have snuck up on me. And I realized that the experience with Jarvis has changed me. I still suffer. I still have depression. I still have anxiety. I still get anxious when I end up in a, you know, a traffic jam, missing a flight. But then I have some of the I've learned and have some of the skills that allow me to take a step out of that moment and to remember, you know, where we are, who we are, what our life, you know, that we are living this, you know, sort of, we have this extraordinary moment when we're alive. And when we stand back and look at this from, you know, the perspective of, of, you know, space, we realize, you know, that we are, you know, this tiny and significant being creature, you know, that's here for a very short time, if we look at the big span. And so it is, you know, this amazing blessing that we have, you know, we are here for this moment. And, you know, we don't you know, look at it like that, think about it like that. And we can experience a completely different reality. You know, we can experience joy, we can even experience our suffering and the fears and the guilt and the shame, whatever it is from a new perspective and realize it, you know, put it in perspective. Anyway, that was a long answer to your question. Yeah it, yeah, it really had an impact on me. And he continues to. You know, he had COVID, as you mentioned. The prison is locked down. I can't go visit him now. Occasionally, you know, he'll get access to a telephone, so we'll talk on the phone. And I really miss him. I really miss those times with him. And, you know, I feel like, you know, he went from being the subject of a book to being someone I consider a friend and even a part of our family. I mean, I visited him with my wife. My one of my, one of my kids went me to visit him and communicates with him now. Yeah. I know you mentioned sort of briefly that you think that there's in time a chance that he'll be freed. But clearly, and, and I think with Black Lives Matter and everything that's happened during COVID, we're all sort of being hit over the head again about the new Jim Crow and the reality of what's happening in our prisons. And, you know, in the context of Nick, your son, right, who struggled with addiction and people very close to me have struggled with addiction. And one of the conversations that I've had with them is if I weren't white for what I did, I would be 
in jail. And then who knows what happens? Like you look at the escalation of what's happened to Masters, right? Like he's in jail and now he's on death row, right? For this this idea that he was involved in the murder of a corrections officer. So how do you grapple with that? Like, how are we going? I mean, it's a big question, but like, how do we fix this? It feels like one of the sort of primary wrongs of what's happened. How do you think about that as someone who's whose life has been could have gone so differently, but didn't? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it has struck me time and time again. I had experiences when I was a kid, when I was in college, you know, I was dealing drugs for a while and not just, you know, a bag of pot or joints here and there, but, you know, pounds of kilos of pot and mushrooms and cocaine. And if I had been in a different circumstance, if I had been this black kid in a ghetto, you know, chances are I would have been arrested, thrown in a police car, and I would have spent most of my life in jail, if not all my life in prison. And, you know, on the other hand, you know, Jarvis would not be on death row if he were white. And, you know, how can I say that for sure? I mean, of course, I can't say it 100% for sure. But so much of his life was defined by his race, because, but defined by racism. You know, we know that one out of every three black males in our country will end up at, in jail or prison at some point in their lives. You know, Jarvis was targeted because he was uh, black. He was put in front of judges who were white, juries who were white. And we know also that uh, juries who are white are much more likely to convict black men and judges are much more likely to give them harsher sentences. Disproportionately on death row, people of color over and over again. But it, it even goes back to something more fundamental than that. It goes back to Jarvis's experiences throughout his whole life where he was never given opportunities that that I was given. You know, he didn't have structure in his life. His parents were in and out of prison themselves, you know, suffered themselves, addicted themselves. No opportunities like my son had to go into treatment, to get rehab, to get therapy. And so the addictions and violence escalated you know, he didn't really have a chance. You know, survival for him when he was a kid was being connected to one of the neighborhood gangs, which was all about violence. And it was all about, you know, gang fighting gangs, neighborhood gangs, you know, guns, robbing stores. You know, that was his life then. And, you know, as he said, he was on the path. It was the youth on its way to prison path. You know, with what is happening now in our country, it's not new at all. You know, George Floyd murder shifted things to the point that maybe it's more in the forefront. People are more, are understanding more. People of all races are understanding more. It sort of shook us up in a way that other horrific killings over the years have not, or they did, but maybe the outrage didn't last. This time the outrage is lasting. You know, will it continue to last? I don't know. What can we do? We cannot, you know, put this aside for the next crisis. I mean, it. I just think a lot about how, you know, we went from the coronavirus, all that I was reading about for months this year was the coronavirus, and then there was George Floyd and everything. We kind of forgot about the coronavirus. I mean, we didn't. We were still isolated. But it was not on the forefront 
And then, frankly, you know, I live in Northern California where the fires are threatening our neighborhood and our, our home. And that's been the preoccupation recently. And again, I haven't forgotten about coronavirus, and I certainly haven't forgotten about the Black Lives Matter movement. But it's so easy to push things aside for the next crisis. And if we do, nothing's going to change. We have an obligation. There's a lot of conversation about it's not just enough to understand racism, but it is to become anti-racist, which means to be involved in active protest and change to create change and i guess in some ways i feel like you know this book hopefully will be a little bit of a part of that because it does talk about the racism that jarvis experienced and you know my i've gotten very because of my son's addiction i've gotten very involved in the world of addiction and mental health around the country and recognize the fact that the treatment system as bad as it is for everyone is worse for people of color. Uh, it is worse. You know, all healthcare is worse. Mental healthcare is worse. You know, in the very small way that I can, I've been trying to, you know, be involved in that and have a small impact. And I think it behooves us all to think about that. And you know, that's the way that we'll change. Feel like it's got to come from the grassroots because it is not going to come from the top down. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code InnerCircle to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What does Masters need? You know, I know you haven't probably been in touch with him as much, but like in the context of what sort of average people like me can do, what does he need? Is it, and what do people in his predicament need? Is it, you know, donations to the Equal Justice Initiative? Is it letters? Is it letters to Newsom? Like, what are, what can we do? And or, like, does he need anything? Does he still? I'm sure he's inundated with mail. Well, he's not, and and I guess what I would say first of all, yes, everything to everything you said, involvement in you know these organizations that are tirelessly working to support prisoners, support their cases, their appeals, but also prisoners' rights. You know, we can forget that these are human beings. You know, in Marin County, where I live, one of the most wealthy, you know, privileged counties in the world, we live with this prison, you know, right on the San Francisco Bay, right out, right part of us. You know, I drive by it and we drive, we all drive by it all the time. And it's so easy to forget, you know, that there are 3,500 incarcerated 
men there. It's a men's, it's a male prison. A million point seven, I think, you know, people incarcerated in the United States. It's really easy to forget and we can't forget. And so, yeah, supporting organizations that are doing, you know, good work to try to support prisoners and to try to get the innocent out of prison. One of the things that Jarvis talks about is his great fear is being forgotten, disappearing. Because, I mean, think about it. If there are 750 people in death row in San Quentin, you know, we've heard of Scott Peterson. He, he actually just was moved from death row very recently. In fact, only last week because of some flaw in his case that was identified. But 700 people on death row, and Jarvis does have a support system, and he has friends, and he's got uh, good lawyers now. He's actually been supported by Oprah Winfrey, who had learned about his case from Pema Chodron, who's helped him get new lawyers. So he feels very fortunate. And one of the most fortunate people on death row and in prisons, because he does have this larger world, but he still is afraid of disappearing because it's so easy to disappear when you're behind those walls, when you're living in a cage. So letters are a connection to the outside world. And he loves hearing from people. And even more, he encourages people to write to other inmates. He said, a letter can change the life of a prisoner. If you go to the California Department of Corrections website, there are listings, directories of all the inmates in California, including their sentences. People are in for life. People are on death row. You know, write them. The addresses are on the website as well. You know, Jarvis's address is on his website, which I think is freejarvis.org. If that's not it, you know, if you Google Jarvis Masters, you can find it. I think that's it. But there are also other ways to help him and also other inmates as well. And it's time, you know, yeah. and it is it is one of the horrors that we perpetrate right now. The fact that there are so many people uh, in prison, so many people who forgot, who are forgotten, and so many people who are in prison because they are poor or they're black, you know, or they're brown. I mean, they've never had opportunities and never had representation. You know, it's one of the great injustices. Yeah. Well, it sort of says it all that Scott Peterson, and for those who don't remember, he's the one who murdered his wife and Lacey and their unborn son. The fact that his death sentence was overturned and yet Jarvis languishes is kind of a perfect example of what's happening. Yeah, um, you're, you're absolutely right. It's exactly the example. I mean, he's white. His family has money to hire good lawyers. He's had good representation you know, from the beginning. And, you know, Jarvis hasn't. I mean, he does now, as I said. So again, Jarvis says he's very lucky. And for someone on death row to say he's lucky says a lot about him and a lot about the circumstances of other people on death row. Oh, thank you so much for your time. I loved the book. Thank you for writing it. I hope it makes massive waves. I'm sure it will. Thanks for listening to my conversation with David Chef. For more from David, please check out his stunning book, The Buddhist on Death Row. And as he mentions, let's think about the ways that we can connect with those who are trapped inside of our deeply unfair and unjust criminal justice system. We can all find perhaps a prisoner to become a pen pal with. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, 
you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.